If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. All right, we're in the midst of a short summer series on the life of David, and a couple things we've seen thus far, right, that whatever chaos life throws at you, God's fatherly provision for you is his son, Jesus. Uh, that's what Psalm 2 tells us, right? The, the nations rage, uh, they're plotting, they're rebelling, saying, how do we get out underneath God's sovereign rule? And there's all kinds of chaos that comes out of that, and cruelty, and, and God says, well... I have set my king on my holy hill. This is my beloved, this is my son. Today I be, have begotten you. And so we're, we're seeing that pattern in the life of David and, and then in Jesus, of trusting in him. And then we've seen uh, David and Goliath. That was last week, right? It was this pa- beautiful pattern of seeing our enemies defeated of sin and death um, by Jesus at great cost to himself. And that's what gets us scared people to rise up and trust Jesus with the lesser giants in our life. Um, And so today we want to keep going in the story. You get two completely different polar opposite reactions to David, his person and his work, right? You have Saul's murderous envy, uh, his irritation at God's goodness to someone else, or Jonathan's beautiful covenant friendship. So that's, those are the things we're going to look at today. So let's read the text. What I want to do is read, uh, verse, start in 17, verse 54, right? the immediate aftermath of David and Goliath. Right? And the, when they originally wrote this, there were no chapters. Right? This is all one story. So let's, let's read God's word. It says, And David took the head of the Philistine, and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. 
And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. God's spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have continued to see our need and provide for us in Christ in ways we have yet to discover. And so I pray you would help us see that today. Open our eyes to see Jesus today, deepen our faith. May we respond to him as Jonathan did, in in deep love for him. So today we ask as we hear in the gospel again, you would put to death in us our sin, our envy, our coveting, our selfish clinging to our own kingdom, and that we would be more open-handed uh, with love for Christ and love for our neighbor. And we pray this for G- in Jesus' name. Amen. So 400 years ago, uh, a guy named George Herbert, I've, I've quoted him before, he was a pastor and a poet, uh, he wrote a poem bemoaning, uh, complaining about the, the lack of ability, the lack of love for fellow Christians in the church, right? The church has had the same battles for 2,000 years, right? And so listen to this poem. It says, put your friend in your heart, right? Wear his eyes still in your heart that he may see what is in there, right? So put on their eyes, put them in their heart so they can get to know you. And if cause require, you are his sacrifice. Your drops of blood must pay down all his fear. And so what he's getting at is, right, it's a beautiful picture of a friend who sacrifices, whose blood sheds for you, and that chases away your fear because you're known and they stay anyway. They fight for you. And then here's the lament. He says, but love is lost. The way of friendship is gone. Though David had his Jonathan, and Christ his John. Right. He's lamenting the fact that it's, people still don't get along. Even though we have two magnificent, beautiful portraits of friendship in the scripture. David and Jonathan, that's what, that we read this morning. He's lamenting the same thing we are, right? In, in 2021, I, I saw an article this week in, in the Harvard Magazine. Uh, it's called... They, they said we're living through a loneliness pandemic, right, which is not too far off because we are those people and we know those people. You're just surrounded by other people, right? You go to work, 
you've got family, you've got people around, you even have people we call friends. And there's still an awful lot of us who say, I just don't feel like anyone knows me, really knows me. I don't feel that close to many people. And in the article, it's fascinating. It says, you know, if the cost of friendlessness is more than we tend to give much thought to, um, it's friendlessness or loneliness is just as healthy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Right? If you don't have friends and you spend all your time by yourself, it's no different than going through 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic. It's actually worse than all the health risks associated with obesity. Right? It's a medical thing. And then you add, of course, right, the last 18 months, we're talking about social distancing, we're quarantining yourself, um, struggling to see people as people, uh, not as enemies who believe differently than us. And so when, when we read this great story of friendship, and we just got the bare minimum, right? We didn't read the whole story of David and Jonathan. Um, I know we, there's stuff to learn. How do we, we need a strong biblical vision of friendship to learn how to knit ourselves together the way Jonathan knit himself to David. Um, to learn how to love another soul as our own, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's the, we're in that, that neighbor love uh, area. And so just think about it this way, right? In our story, David, God's champion, He's filled with God's spirit. You read about success after success after success. And yet, even with all of that, he could not survive without his friend Jonathan. He needed a friend. And commentators point out that the part we read in, in 18.1, when Jonathan loves David as his own soul, and they cut a covenant... That happens again in chapter 20. It happens again in chapter 23 at the very end, right? All of David's suffering is bracketed by this friendship with Jonathan, right? Meaning, David gets through suffering. He gets through forced isolation. He gets through rejection. He gets through weakness because he had this friend by his side because of Jonathan's loyal love. And so this is, just to get our minds thinking about this, if David, full of God's power, full of God's presence, he's filled with the Spirit, he's loved by the crowds, it says Israel and Judah loved him, if he needed a friend to survive in this fallen world, what about us? What about you? Right? And so what I want to do is look at the text uh, through this, this way that we're shown two radically different responses to David. They're polar opposites. Uh, one is loyal love. Um, able to rejoice in God's goodness to someone else. And the other, of course, is Saul's murderous envy and anger. And so we're, I want to look at the beauty of friendship, the ugliness of envy, and then how God's friendship changes us. It's packed in, packed in here. All right, so let's start with the beauty of friendship. All right, so if you look at the context, look at chapter 18, uh, the end of 17 there. David's fresh from the battle. Uh, he's still just carrying around Goliath's head because, you know, it's what you do after a battle. Um, and the conversation in the, in the community is just swirling as David comes to Saul, and they're saying, who are you? Who is this guy who showed such faith? All right, and so it says, he, I am the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Um, 
we, the reader, knows the background, right? This is God's chosen one. Those there don't know that. So we're, we're being told and shown how God protected his people through David. He's the champion. And so the effect of God fighting for his people through David, right? What's that effect on Jonathan? He see, right, he, Jonathan sees David holding the decapitated head of his enemy, and he says, I love that guy. Right? The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is the person I want to follow. This is my king. This is the one God is with. Um, this is the one I love. All right? And it's such an astounding thing because of who Jonathan is, right? It's already, everybody's already risen up and followed David into battle, but what Dave, Jonathan is doing here, um, ordinarily, Jonathan would be the next king. He's the son of Saul. This clearly, and you read the story, right? This is Saul's hope for him, that this would be, that you would be king and this would be your kingdom, Right? And in typical right, Game of Thrones type fashion, different families vying for the throne, they don't become friends. They're enemies. The way to secure your position in the, the ancient political world was to slaughter the enemy family and any pretenders to the throne. That way you just live, you know, the high life, comfort, protected it. But Jonathan does the opposite, right? He sees that God is with David and somehow seems to understand that David's going to be king, not him. And so he, said his, he binds himself to David. He cuts a covenant. Right? If you make a covenant with someone in the ancient world, this is, this is promise language. It's saying, I swear to be for you, for better or worse. I'm, I'm not going to leave you alone. Right? When you're a drain on my emotions, my energy, when it becomes inconvenient, I'm still staying. It's pretty astounding, right? It's, it's my life for yours. They're binding themselves together. Your sorrow is my sorrow. Your suffering is my suffering. And, and the way this goes on, right, it's may God do harm to me if I do harm to you. It's pretty big promises. Right? So he commits himself in friendship to David, and then this is what he does. It's so shocking. He gives up his robe, his belt, his sword, his bow, which is symbolically saying, I am laying down my rights to the throne. You are the king. I am laying aside my claim to the throne. I promise to fight for you. All right? He's giving his sword in allegiance to David. I mean, one of the great, beautiful examples of this is, of course, Lord of the Rings. It's about friendship. And as, as the story starts and they're getting ready to take this ring to, uh, to defeat evil and to destroy the ring, right, there's a whole community of people from all different backgrounds, and they see Frodo and they see the battle against evil, right? And Aragorn, he rises up and he says to Frodo, if by my life and, or by my death I can protect you, I will. You have my sword. Right? And of course, Legolas the elf says, you have my bow. And then the, the dwarf says, you have my axe. I'm not going to try and say it like he did. <laughs> and that starts their friendship, their journey, as they, they go to stand in the gap between Frodo and evil so that he can accomplish the mission. Right? 
Similar here, right? Jonathan, the crown prince, is functionally giving David the future crown. And he's saying, I'm going to fight for you. My sword is yours. All right, but he does so, and this is what's so fascinating. The way Jonathan commits himself to David is uh, so intimate, so personal. It just makes us modern people uncomfortable. We don't talk like this to each other. I don't talk like this to people. Right? I mean, it's so intimate as he talks about loving him as his own soul. I mean, David, at the end, when Jonathan dies in battle, he says, I love you. Your love to me, Jonathan, was more precious than that of women. Right? And so our modern world, like our, our caution bells go off, and, and we, this, is what romantic, this is what the modern world does. We read romance into this friendship when that has nothing to do with it. Right? I mean, C.S. Lewis put it really bluntly, just because you insist there's an invisible cat on the chair, right, romantic desire, doesn't mean there's actual invisible cat. And what he's getting at is, right, we're seeing more about ourselves when we try and read uh, physical romance into a story where it's not explicitly being communicated. I think it says a lot more about um, our inability to see our need for friends. Real friends, deep friendship. All right, so what can we learn about David and Jonathan's friendship here? All right, first, we already pointed this out. One, you need friends to get through suffering. All right, if David did not have the friendship of Jonathan started here in our text, he most likely would not have survived. Jonathan was his friend standing in the gap between Saul's anger and David. Right? So just as we read, Saul's filled with envy and he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Right? That's what happens. The hatred gets so bad that David lives life on the run out in the wilderness. He, it even gets so bad that he takes refuge among the Philistines who he just right, fought in battle because Saul is so murderously angry. He, he's just committed to David's death. And at every corner as you read this story, where David is, there you will find Jonathan by his side, defending, protecting, fighting for him. To stand in the gap between the wrath of Saul and David, his friend. All right, and, and here's the, the, a really beautiful place. Right? In one point in chapter 20, verse 30, Saul's just raging at Jonathan for fighting and defending David. And this is what Saul says. He says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman... Don't you think I know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Right? Saul's committed. And here's what Jonathan says. He answers Saul, his father, and says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. So Jonathan rose from table in fierce anger. He ate no food. He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Right, so you see that Saul, all he can think about is his kingdom holding on to his stuff. He no longer sees people. And it's so bad, he even throws a spear at his own son. Jonathan is now suffering as David has suffered, having to dodge spears from his dad. 
And yet as you follow the story, right, friendship, this loyal love of Jonathan, that's what got David through this injustice, fear, and suffering. That's what the Proverbs tells, right? A friend loves at all times. There, there should be no such thing as a fair-weather friend. Or Proverbs 18, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? For David, that friend is Jonathan, and Jonathan's name means uh, God has given. Jonathan is God's gift to David for suffering. And so you ask that question, right? Do you have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? I mean, I know it's hard to put ourselves in these violent situations, but we've all dealt with anger, which is the seed of the same thing that Saul's perpetrating murder. Are you willing to rearrange your, your life to be a friend like that? That's what Jonathan is doing. Right? So that's the first point. We need friends for suffering. We also need covenant friendship, and this is part of what makes us so beautiful, is uh, they cut a covenant together. They bind their futures together. And, and it keeps getting expanded on as the story goes. So if you're in chapter 20, verse 14, where Jonathan asks David, he says, I want you to show me the steadfast love of the Lord so that I don't die. Right? So that when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies, David, you will show kindness to me. Steadfast love. He's saying... May our friendship extend even beyond death. Be kind to me. And so really what he's saying is, I want you, David, to love me the way the Lord loves me. May the Lord, right, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what he said. And so think about it this way. Right, if you're going to learn a Hebrew word, that, that's absolutely beautiful and central to the whole story. It's like the, the backbone of the Bible. It's this word for steadfast love. It's God's hesed. It's, his lo- it's God's loyal love. It's also wrapped up in his mercy. Uh, it's, uh, you can describe it in several different ways, right? You read different translations. Some are going to say loyal love. It's going to say steadfast love. Uh, sometimes it's just mercy. Sometimes it's loving kindness. Um, but it's this whole idea that when God commits himself to loving someone, he never leaves them alone. He stays through thick and thin, whether they deserve it or not. Right? And one of the chief examples of that would be the way God loved Jacob. You remember Jacob in the Old Testament? Not a guy you would want to befriend. Kind of shifty. Um, he's the lying younger brother who lies to his dad to get God's blessing. And when Jacob goes on the run, what does God say to him? God says, I swear I will bless you and be with you until all my promises come true. Right? That's steadfast love. I'm going to stay with you whether it benefits me or not, and it's going to be for your benefit. That's what God does for Jacob. Jacob doesn't see it till the end of his life when he says, I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love that you have shown me, O Lord. Right? So when Jonathan and David, they've bound themselves up into this steadfast covenantal relationship, they're bound together by this thing called steadfast love that they've learned from the Lord. They're, trying to, they're imitating, they're loving as they've been loved. 
right? Which is so countercultural, right? The, the only kind of alternative would be a consumer relationship. You know what I mean by that? Right? What have you done for me lately? Right? Give me a quote. What, what's your friendship going to do for me? Right? We don't say these things out loud, but it pays off, right, when we bail when it gets hard. Right? I mean, we recently got a quote for something for our house, and co every contractor knows, right? We're not entering into a, a, a friendship deal, <laughs> right? No matter how polite and friendly, you can make jokes. We're not binding ourselves together for life. It's you do for me and I, what I ask you to do, and then that's the terms of the deal. It has an end. And in consumer relationships, we're always looking for a better deal, a better phone, a better contractor, a cheaper deal. Now, covenant friendships, they say crazy things like Jonathan said, that if my father decides to harm you and I don't help you, may God do harm to me or worse, because I'm with you. I'm in this relationship to the end. That's how they bound themselves to each other. So we need friends for suffering, and for that to work, it has to be a covenant kind of friendship. Uh, I love you as I have been loved by the Lord. I'm not going to leave you alone. And third, we need intimate friendships. When, when Jonathan said he loved David as his own soul, it's this idea of being open, honest, transparent, uh, to let someone else in on your thoughts and feelings. Uh, you heard it a little bit this morning when Jesus says, right in John 15, I no longer call you servants because the servants have no idea what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. And a friend lays down his life for another, saying, I'm, I'm showing you, I'm telling you you're my friend because I'm letting you in on my, my heart for you. All right? And so we need intimate friends. And if you watch the story of David and Jonathan, they are more intimate than we Americans are. We like our space. Right? I mean, they openly kiss each other in greeting. Uh, they weep deeply with one another in suffering and stress. Uh, when Jonathan is killed, David falls apart because he says, Jonathan, your love to me was more wonderful than that of women because he was there for him, defending him. All right? So we need friends who open their, who love us as their own soul. They let us in. We need to let others in. It's, it's intimacy. It's being known. Right? I mean, it, this kind of intimacy, I think, pushes us to say to our friends out loud, I love you. Guys don't do this well. <laughs> right? Without making jokes. It's just saying, I could not get through life without you. I need to let someone else in. Right? That's what God says. It is not good for human beings to be alone in Genesis 2. And so we need, we need intimate friendships where we let someone else in. And so here's, here's the portrait of David and Jonathan, right? They've, they've got this covenant friendship it's an intimate friendship, and because they had those two things together, it carried David through suffering. It carried Jonathan through suffering. They were in it together. Right, so how do you apply that? Well, 
You know what Paul's prayer is for the local church in Colossians 2? He said, my struggle for you who are at Laodicea is that you would knit yourselves together in love. I don't know if he's thinking of Jonathan and David, but it's similar language. Right? Where you love one another as the Lord loves. Right? It's Ephesians 5. Therefore, dearly beloved, forgive as you have been forgiven. As beloved children of God, love as you have been loved. Right? This is what the local church is for. <laughs> to build friendships that we carry one another's burdens. And in Jonathan and David's case, it's even more astounding because they are, should be, by the world its accounts, they should be enemies. They should have nothing to do with each other. They're from different tribes. The tribe of Benjamin wants to be king. The tribe of Judah wants to be king. Jonathan lays down his claim to the throne out of love for David. God's love binds them together in friendship. That's the encouraging part, right? The beauty of friendship. Now we look at Saul. You get to see the ugliness of envy. Right? If Jonathan responds to David's fighting for him with love, Saul reacts with anger and envy. It sucks all his joy. It steals all his gratitude. It eats him alive. And that's really what ruins relationships is envy. And it's not something we talk about. But it says, right, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women of all the cities came out singing, celebrating, right? Saul killed thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And that just ticked Saul off. <laughs> Saul was very angry. It, it displeased him. And he says, what's going to happen? He's going to be king. I'm going to lose my position. It's the very opposite response of Jonathan. And then it says, Saul eyed David from that day on. And not in a good way. He's filled with envy, jealousy, and fear. He's clinging more tightly to what God has given him instead of holding it with an open hand like Jonathan. So do you know what envy is? Right, it's not, we don't talk about this a whole lot. Envy is wanting someone else's life. It often starts with coveting. Right? I want what you have, your success, your power your friends, all these good gifts God has given you. But it doesn't stop because envy isn't content to stop until the other person is miserable as you are miserable. It's like an uncontained forest fire. It moves from I want what you have to I am constantly watching you and I can't look away and I'm ready to bring you down. That's what happens with Saul. It's the very opposite of covenant love that we just talked about. Right? Friendship, loyal love, leads us to weep with those who weep, to, to be willing to suffer as they suffer, to come alongside. Envy sees the joy of another and just gets mad. Sees the success of another and grinds their teeth. And when they lose, when they suffer, right? when they weep, we cheer. Thank God they're getting what comes to them. <laughs> Right? And so I know the ugly truth is most of us are not tempted to grab a spear to try and pin someone to a wall, to put them to a permanent end. But envy makes us eye an awful lot of people with suspicion and anger at what God's doing for them. 
right? I mean, that's, that's what the Proverbs is getting at, right? A, a peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, rejoicing in all the good gifts you've been given. But envy is like a cancer to the bones. It rots you from the inside out. And you see that. That's what happens to Saul. He just falls apart. He eats him alive, right? I, I have a picture of a painting. I'm going to use a, an illustration. I think, yeah, there it is. It's an old Italian painter illustrating uh, the, the sin of envy in Vidya. Uh, you can see that person on your, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, it's a good picture of what Saul's doing, right? It's, it's this person who they already have a money bag, right? It's actually chained to her belt because she's really worried about losing it. It's blind to what she's doing, right? This, this serpent is coming out and you can't see anything other than what they want. And it's, I want, I want what you have. Even as she's on fire, right? It's, it's, it's illustrating the proverb, she's falling apart. Which is the very opposite of this portrait of, of charity, uh, the way Jonathan loved. You know, you know open, receiving from above, got abundance, there's money bags below, it's open, it's willing to share. I know it's, it's not a normal uh, illustration because it's just, it's visual, it's trying to get at your, your idea. Look at how ugly envy is side by side with charity. Right? Envy eats us alive. Envy enslaves us to what we have versus the open-handedness of love. Saul throws a spear, Jonathan lays down his sword. So, think about it this way. Look at Saul. He's the king. He is the king of the kingdom. God has blessed him. He had the Holy Spirit. God with him, he had success in battle. He had plenty of reasons for gratitude, but at some point, keeping what he had, staying in power... His kingdom, his rights, his power, his life became more important. And he was no longer saying, God, your kingdom come. He was saying, all I care about is my kingdom. And so David becomes a threat. Envy starts eating away at his bones. And this is what happens. Envy makes gratitude impossible. Because you're blind to how good God has been to you. Right. So here's... Here's one description of, of envy, right? And it's just, we all know what it's like. He says, you know, you compare it with all the other deadly sins, giving in to sloth and laziness, right? It, you can have moments of pleasure. It's pleasant to be lazy. Uh, you can give in to the, you can lose your temper. That gives a release that sometimes it feels good. It has its small delights. But lust, greed, and pride, of course, they bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. But only envy is no fun at all. It drains all joy from you from its very first moment. We've all felt envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. <laughs> God, are you taking care of me? I want what they have. Right? And so the question is, how are you doing with your battle against envy? Right? Envy blinds us from the good of what God is showing his people. And I know it's tempting, right? This is one of those things that's really embarrassing to say out loud. I'm, I'm a jealous person. 
to say I, because it, it just makes it sound so petty. Right? Because I'm just, I'm eyeing other people instead of being content with what God has given me. Right? But watch how you respond. I'm, I'm including myself here. Watch how we respond to how you see other people who don't believe like you in power succeeding. Right? Do you get angry? Do you celebrate God's goodness to them or do you rejoice in their downfall? Right? From that day on, do you keep your eye on them? Climbing to God's throne and saying, here's what you should do with their power. Right? So what it does, it makes you blind to all the good things God has given you. And it limits your ability to be friends with people who believe differently than you. Right? I mean, Jonathan and David are literally from warring tribes, and yet we see God's victory bind them together in fr as friends. Jonathan can celebrate God exalting David, even at great cost to himself. So, how do you get there from Saul-like envy that's self-absorbed to laying down your life kind of friendship? Right? And if this is how relationships in the church are supposed to be, um, how do we do that? How are we formed into a Jonathan to be a gift from God for someone else? And, and this is where the gospel comes in. Um, when you read the gospels about Jesus, you see two things, right? Jesus had a way of getting radical responses from everybody near him. Murderous envy from the Pharisees, or like Peter, right? I will die for you, Lord. I will lay down my life for you. I'm going to leave my family, my house. Right? When Jesus says things like, follow me, and they leave their nets behind and their families, right? he, he evoked radical responses. Either loyal, the desire to be a loyal friend <laughs> or murderous envy. Right? There was no meh. Right? God's work through Jesus got people's attention. Right, so you got the Pharisees who are never happy until the point where Jesus is saying, just like Saul, right? Everyone is rejoicing in what God's done in David. Saul's mad. <laughs> right, so Jesus says to the Pharisees, to what shall I compare this generation? They're like kids sitting in the, in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. Right, and Jesus is just calling them out and saying, you know, you're just like kids who are always miserable. When everyone wants to play wedding and celebrate, you're sitting in the corner moping, saying, I, I don't feel happy, so I don't want to. And so they're, all right, let's come down where you are and let's play funeral and be sad together. <laughs> but they don't want to mourn either because they don't want to join in the reindeer games because envy just made them miserable. Like Saul, the Pharisees watched the crowds go out to Jesus and all they could think about was what they were losing, their influence. And what it did is it led them to murder, to put Jesus to death. And then you see the disciples, like Peter, saying, when Jesus says, I'm going to die on the cross, Peter says, I'm going to die for you. I would never let you do that by yourself. He loved him. Right? But what, what do you see? <laughs> this is one way to look at this to say, okay, choose one. But what are you called to respond to as a Christian? an imitation of this text. Right? 
It's not looking at our love for Jesus. It's first looking at Jesus' love for us. Look at the gift of Jesus' friendship love. This is what's going to kill our envy. Right? What does Jesus do? He, he's the king, but he lays down his sword, his power. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became obedient even to death on a cross to die for his friends. Rather than treat us as enemies... He lays down his sword and says, I want to share the kingdom with you. It's an intimate love. He loves us as his own soul to the point where God, the living God, right? He becomes human. He becomes flesh to come down and make himself known, to make himself vulnerable, to, to tell us God's heart. What val- what's valued most, right? It's humans. And he comes to suffer as we have suffered, right? That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He became human and suffered in every way we have, yet without sin. He was tempted, tested. But it's also covenantal. And that's what you get at the Last Supper. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup, giving thanks. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood for the remissions of sins. See, Jonathan said to David, may you show me the steadfast love of the Lord. We have a much more visible picture of that when Jesus said, I am the visible embodiment of God's never giving up on you steadfast love. I'm here to befriend the unfaithful friends. See, the only way to be formed into a Jonathan is to see Jesus fight for us with this covenantal, intimate, uh, loyal love kind of friendship to say, I want to be like him. Right? And when you do that, and you realize he loved you like that when you were the unfaithful friend, that gives us a desire to say, how do I do that for the people around me? And so the payoff, well, as our world, the world's always been tribal, it's not American, but as our world becomes increasingly tribal, what's going to get us through suffering? What's going to even grow the church, right? As the world splits over politics, bickering over power, and what, what rules and regulations should be in place, right? Jesus is forming a place where envy is being put to death. A community of Jonathans. A community of friends. Right? It's what Paul wrote in the Ephesians, he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And he has made us both one, so he's brought us together and broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility in order to make a new humanity. Right? So this is, this is saying, right, we, we are freed to make friends across tribal lines inside the church because we have Jesus' friendship love for us in common. What are you called to do when you become a Christian? It's no different than Jonathan. This is why people reject the gospel, right? Jesus says, come and follow me. Lay down your rights to what you think is your kingdom. Lay down your sword. Serve me. And in unbelief, we say, I don't want to do that. I want to be in charge. I want to be my own boss. But what the gospel is calling us to do is, as we are befriended by Jesus... It's to lay down our sword, our bow, our belt, to learn to say, you've befriended me. 
It's not my kingdom come anymore. <laughs> it's, Lord, your kingdom come. So teach me to love what you love, to, to care about what you care about, which is, right, the body of, the body of Christ, the church. And so what we do is we lay down our sword, we lay down our desire to win at all costs, and rather we pick up a cross and become like Christ, a Christ-like friend, and say, I'm for you, and I'm going to fight for you. It's my, my place beside yours until Jesus returns. That's, that's, the, that's the visible life of the church because of what Jesus has done. So do you know that kind of friendship-like love given to you in Christ? Um, Run to the cross and, and find out. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that uh, as we see... Thank you for the beauty of friendship. Uh, that that you, though you are with us, you've given us your spirit, you've died for us on our behalf, you, you, you don't leave us alone. Uh, you give us friends to, to suffer with, to bear one another's burdens, to have someone to weep with us, to have someone to rejoice with us. And so I pray for Hope Church... Uh, that we would be that beautiful community that Christ is building uh, because we know the friendship of Christ uh, that is better than we deserve. So show us now your steadfast love as we go out, even trying to live that out among us. In Jesus' name, amen.